Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right on KPFT. My name is Egberto Willis. We have a great show for you. Before we get started, I I want to really ask you to go to kpft.org, 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 and consider contributing to our station to make sure we can keep this 100,000-watt transmitter going because we are the last bastion of progressive information here in town. So please, again, go to kpft.org and provide support for this station. You will not regret it. You continue to hear the type of programming that we have here. Today we have three major topics. Well, you know, a lot of our stuff going to many different kinds of topics, etc. But today we are going to start out with uh, Trumpism versus racism and really going at the core of what that really means. In effect, what I'm trying to say, well, you'll hear what I have to say because what I don't believe is that we have ever tackled this thing correctly. And David Brooks, someone that progressives don't particularly like, I think he was on to something in a recent piece that he wrote. And what we're going to do is we're going to take that a step further and me give you some of my thoughts. Secondly, we're going to talk about a delusional young lady. This young lady believes that all is well as she sits outside of her coffee shop and see that things look fine. Why are people complaining? Why is it that millennials now want a different kind of economic system that make things better for them? Are they blind? Don't they see that we at our coffee shop sitting down with our Max and having our latte and watching cars drive outside? Things are great in America. Maybe she should have gone somewhere else. Maybe go to Philadelphia. Maybe go to Bronx, maybe go to downtown Houston just on the outskirts and see, well, the lifestyle that you think is the lifestyle of everybody isn't necessarily so. The problem is we have such an unempathetic group of folk all of the time. We must learn to do better. And last subject, we have a great group. The, it's an improv group that, I, uh, that, that they, I was honored to be on a few weeks ago during the election cycle here at KPFT. Well, Can't Tell Us Nothing is here with us today. And that is how we're going to close out. Can't Tell Us Nothing. These guys are great. You guys are going to have to go see these guys wherever they are. Hash, or rather, not hashtag, but Twitter handle CTUN Improv. C T U N I M P R O V. Check them out. But you know what? Let's get busy and we're getting started right this minute. The question that you have to ask is why are Trump and these guys so effective? in having these guys listen to them and believe in them. Because 
Deep inside in their hearts, they know that we, the progressives, are right. But it's that sixth sense that says, but they don't care about me. I want you to listen to David Brooks. A lot of what he says I agree with. A lot of my progressive brothers and sisters want to say, no, forget about those people because it is just a racist thing and it's only that. I look at racism as a tool. I look at economics as the totality of everything, right? And I think... Listen to David Brooks and then we'll take it on the other side. Some people are going to dispute what he said. In fact, most in the black and brown intelligentsia completely disagrees with what David Brooks is going to say here. But check this out and we'll take it on the other side. Let me read a little bit from your from your op-ed, which is why we invited you. It's called the, Repo- the Rotting of the Republican Mind. Under Trump, the Republican identity is defined not by a set of policy beliefs, but by a paranoid mindset. He and his media allies simply ignore the rules of the epistemic regime and have set up rival a rival trolling regime. The Internet is an ideal medium for untested information to get around traditional gatekeepers, but it is an accelerant of the paranoia, not its source. Distrust and precarity caused by economic, cultural, and spiritual threat are the source. So you've diagnosed the illness. What's what's the prescription? How do we regain trust? How do we build back a society where everybody believes um, that it's the month of May when it's the month of May? <laughs> right. Well, I think that the core problem is not the Internet. A lot of people that go, it's the Internet, it's the Internet. But look at how much more Republicans are affected by conspiracy theories than Democrats. Uh, so it can't just be the Internet. There must be some demand. And I think there are two core problems here. One is a lot of people in the expert class um, live in blue cities who are thriving. And then a lot of people left behind in the rural parts of America they feel threatened economically, culturally, socially, and they have no contact with the expert class. So the thing to do, one, we, we those of us in the expert class or in journalism uh, and academia, have to do a better job of reaching out and, and post-Trump establishing relationships, showing some respect. Then there has to be economic policy so people don't feel threatened. Uh, the only way to cure distrust is through trustworthy relationships. It's by keeping promises to people who are unlike yourself. And it's been hard in the Trump era because it's become so bitter and acrimonious, but there's really no other way. In the black and brown intelligentsia, what they would say is that that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous because we progressives are trying to give these guys financial stability and the programs that we support are better for them and Donald Trump and these guys are doing nothing right, but they'll still go for Donald Trump because they're just a whole bunch of damn racists. And you know, two things don't have to be mutually exclusive, right? They don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can be racist and at the same time, they can do what they do for economic reasons. And I always give that example, and and this is where a lot of my thought process comes from, right? I always give that example of when Obama was running. And this person goes to this woman, to, to this family's house, the canvasser. They're going to the house. And they, things are bad in 2008. Terrible. Things are terrible. And the canvasser goes to the woman. I don't know why she had to ask the, the husband, but she, she says, the canvasser, Obama's canvasser goes, ma'am, who are you going to vote for? And the wife turns around and says, husband, who are we voting for? And he shouts out. We are voting for the N guy, the N-word guy, meaning this white racist couple was going to vote for Obama. Their, their personal economy had reached to the state. Were the faith that they had in the, even the, the, the racial overtones that that 
race in 2008 took, even that for them to say, I won't vote for Barack Obama. What I'm trying to tell folks is these things are not mutually exclusive. And in my, in my book, I gave several stories about talking to Daniel Boone's, the relatives of Daniel Boone here in Houston. You know, the Daniel Boone was a man, was a big... The, the rel- I spoke to these guys. I spoke to a lot of these guys in the Tea Party. And I explained that very well in the book. Yeah, these guys are, some of these guys are racist and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? It goes beyond racism, right? Racism is the tool. Racism is the tool from the inception of this country. And we have to mitigate that. But when we sit on it all of the times, right, we play into the, the domain of these people. What Barack Obama did, a lot of people talk about Barack's, you know, the way he did that. What Barack Obama did, the way he calibrated his message, allowed that guy to say, I am going to vote for the N guy. Even as I am a racist, because I see the ulterior goal. And what I try to tell my brothers and sisters on the left, right, is you're not asking anybody to love you. You're not asking anybody to like you. You don't even want to go break bread with you. You just realize that you need more than 50 plus one. You need, if you want to get legislation that help us all, You have to make sure that your policies and the things that you want supersedes that guy's personal prejudices. They have to supersede the prejudice. So when somebody is racist against me, does it bother me? No. I have a daughter I love. I have my posse here at at Politics Done Right that I love. I have all these I have a big infrastructure, a big, big, huge village that I so love. I don't have to be loved in Appalachia to understand that Appalachia has a problem and to also want to fix Appalachia's problem because knowing what I know, if I fix Appalachia's problem, my problems is fixed as well or fixed as well. If I fix Appalachia's problems, some of the racist Appalachians who believe the word that is the other that is making them or giving them the condition that they are, some of that will be mitigated. You see? Now, you're always going to have the supremacists. Hell, you have rich people that are all in the top 1% that their supremacy within the 1% that this rich 1%er says, I don't like Oprah. She's a billionaire. I'm a billionaire, but I'm better just because I'm white. You know, I we can't solve... All these internal problems. We can't. And one of the issues I have is by trying to solve some problems before others and saying we have to do this, sometimes we hurt the entire thing. I I tell you what, let's see. The Republican mind had been polluted by David Brooks for so long. He's accountable for the intelligentsia of the rich. Not only David Brooks. Let's look at some of the guys on the left as well. It's so important that we look at our left side. I go and I participate in a lot of these things on the left, right? Where, we, where all of us from the left meets. And I sit down there in the room and we are discussing issues. And it turns out the left, who is the great people? I'm, only the, I'm one of five or ten black people in there where we have 500 people. Why is that? 
I thought we were the people who really wants to solve problems. Look, humanity is humanity is humanity. We have to start solving things on an individual basis. So my take is, is this. I am not going to allow in my, in my activism. I'm going to work with everybody. Hey, thank you, Brother Fleming, for ordering the book. In fact, I'm going to give my little thing a minute. I'm going to talk to everybody, people. I'm going to love everybody. And some people are going to hit me. And I'm going to come right back. Because I understand that it's the cancer that's been placed into this country. And I understand also that the only way to get rid and extricate that cancer is to break the cycle they hope we don't. And Trump almost brought us to the brink. Let's continue here with uh, the story that I want to talk to you about. Uh, let's get to that story. Vamos a ver. Está aquí. Um, a friend of mine, good friend of mine, love the guy. Uh, we go back and forth. He is uh, a conservative. But he so far believes that Americans, or rather that, that liberals are crazy. He honestly believes liberals are crazy. He believes that liberals are burning things down. He believes all these things. Do I hate him for believing that? No. If you take a look at Fox News, if you take a look at Trump's new AON uh, station, if you take a look at, uh, at the other one that, uh, what, is in, what is that station? Um, uh, there's this other one called uh, Para Ver, Para Ver. Actually, they are becoming pretty big these days. I'm going to try to go up there and see what it is because I know, I know some of their, their links somehow appear on my site as well. Uh, but anyhow, there's a Newsmax. Newsmax. If you take a look at Newsmax and all these others, these guys have, a, a, they have an effective misinformation machine. And, and to the people on the le- right who would say, why is that misinformation and what CNN is saying is not misinformation? Everything that you have from CNN, yes, it's Newsmax, is corroborated and we, it's repeatable. You know, in science, something is scientifically proven if, if it's observable and if it's repeatable. And the things that we say on CNN and even on MSNBC, while it always has a, uh, some of, uh, while on C- MSNBC it, it has a, a, a substantially progressive bias, it is observable and it's reproducible. What is not observable is for somebody to tell me that there are riots and, 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 and riots and liberals are burning down the cities and you go to every city that is supposed to be being burnt down and the cities are still there and there are no fires and businesses are still there and they're being shown old tapes. Anyhow, this friend of mine sent me this thing. He said, uh, so I said, a friend sent me a, the following post. And he, I want to read the, the, the post for you. I'm going to do it really quickly so I can start getting to some answers. If you are fearful that the new generation of voters don't get it, read the article written by Alice Al- Algren. I think her analysis of why they think uh, the way they do is exactly correct. And here's what it says. I am sitting in a small coffee shop near uh, Nokomis trying to think of what to write about. This is what she's saying. 
I scrolled uh, through my newsfeed on my phone looking at the latest headlines of Democratic candidates calling for policies to fix the so-called injustices of capitalism. I put my phone down and continue to look around. I see people talking freely, working on their MacBooks, ordering food. They get an instant seeing cars go by outside, and it's dawned on me. We live in the most privileged time in the most prosperous nation, and we've become completely blind to it. Vehicles, food, technology, freedom to associate with whom we choose. These things are so ingrained in our American way of life. We don't give it a second thought. We are so well off here in the United States that our poverty that begins is 31 times above the global average. 31 times. Virtually no one in the United States is considered poor by global standards. Yet, in times where we can order a product off Amazon with one click and have it to our doorstep, the next day, we are unappreciative, unsatisfied, and ungrateful. Our, our unappreciation is evident as the popularity of socialist policies among my generation continues to grow. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently said to Newsweek talking about the millennial generation, an entire generation which is now becoming one of the largest elect, uh, electorates in the America, came of age and never saw American prosperity. Never saw American prosperity? Let that sink in. When but let me stop first there. I want to stop there because here's the thing. No, the, the millennials have never saw, seen prosperity. No, they have not. They are in debt. They didn't get the, the GI Bill. All the good socialist programs that Americans, the baby boomer got, boomers got, they didn't. But here is what I find most unempathetic with this young woman. She says, I am sitting at the coffee shop watching cars outside parking and also watching people on their MacBooks and if they want to order something from Amazon, they do. She's right. But look at that insular area she's looking at. Had she been to Appalachia? And the reason I'm starting at Appalachia is I don't even want to bring in the thing about uh, people of color yet. Let's just go to Appalachia. Has she been to Appalachia? Has she seen the misery my daughter, who is a med student, and right now is doing, uh, right now she's having those issues with the stroke, as I always told you. But she drove around Appalachia because she was, she was working for a healthcare firm that was trying to get doctors to do better. She was shocked. She had never seen the poverty that she saw in Appalachia, in Ohio, in uh, Virgi West Virginia. She did the whole circle. My daughter called me in shock. She had never seen poverty like that. And she has been into the ghettos in Houston. And she had never seen that. Now, do you think what this woman is talking about, the millions of people that live in, 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 those, in Appalachia, in Ohio, in Alabama, in, in, uh, in all these areas, do you think that is their reality, what she's talking about? It is not. And now, remember who we're talking about now. We're not talking about the people of color yet. That's not their reality. Do you think the people now in the barrios, do you think that is their reality? No. They're not sitting down drinking a cup of coffee at a coffee shop. That's not their reality. But that is her reality and it is fine. It is fine to be appreciative of that. 
what is not fine is not to understand the unempathy of you thinking that your lifestyle is what everybody else lives. Go to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez district and see how those people live. See how many of them have internet. See how many of them are living on a wage they can survive on other than in some sort of a rent control building that they're still way behind on. And let's talk about the new generation. The new generation, so many of them are having to live back home. That didn't happen by accident. That happened as the baby boomers reduced taxes and made sure that the kids who went to college didn't get the beneficial treatment they got, so they had to borrow money. So now they're paying at both ends. They have to pay the interest for the loans at the same time that they had to pay to go to school themselves to support corporations who paid less taxes. So these corporations are taking money at both ends. We pay to educate ourselves so the corporations could use our education, and then the corporations then charge us the interest for the education we got. But this isn't expressed in that way for people to understand, right? People don't get it that way. They just get, I want to get ahead so I get me a student loan and I go to school. And I am doing fine. I'm at my coffee shop drinking my cappuccino. But for those who don't have the wherewithal, right? For those who continue to work for the corporate structure, who they paid to they paid to be educated so the corporate structure could use them folks we have to understand this so that is what this young woman did not understand this young woman is not a bad person but that is what she was taught when she watched fox news that's what she was taught she was taught how to be hateful and selfish she was taught not to look through the eyes of others When I speak, and again, I did very well in America. I came from Panama. I did very well. I've downgraded myself by orders of magnitude because my morality did not allow me to keep doing what I was doing. It's so important. I have a daughter. And when I see what we have been doing to them, when I see what the plutocracy, when I see what what we have allowed the plutocracy to allow the baby boomers by cutting taxes, by being so selfish to do to our millennials and the other generations. That is what, that is what drives me. Because it's not, it is not sustainable. And it's not only that it's not sustainable, but it actually causes pain. It actually causes pain. So, continuing... Never saw American prosperity. Let that sink in. When I first read that statement, I thought to myself, that was quite literally the most enlightened and factually literate thing I've ever heard my 26th year on the earth. Now I'm not attributing Ms. Ocasio-Cortez's words to outright dishonesty. I do think she wholeheartedly believes the words she said to be true. Many young people agree with her, which is entirely misguided. My generation is being indoctrinated by a mainstream narrative to actually believe we have never been prosperly, prosper, we, we have never seen prosperity. I know this firsthand. I went to college. Let's just say I didn't have the popular opinion, but I digress. You think? You think? You think? Let me lay down some universal truths really quick. This is from her continuing. The United States of America has lifted more people out of abject poverty. Yeah. And we also have to remember the United States of America was one of the biggest recipients of free labor. 
spread more freedom and democracy and has created more innovation in technology and medicine than any other nation in human history. Oh, that's true. But guess how that happened? That happened because America is able to import the best of the best from all over the world. Let's look at where all the inventions came from. Look at the people who have created and invented and see where they came from. Hell, even the cotton gin, the real person who invented it, never got credit for it. The list goes on. However, those universal truths don't matter. We are all told income inequality is an existential crisis. Even though this is not an indicator of prosperity, some of the poorest countries in the world have low income inequality. We are told that we are oppressed by capitalism, even though it's brought about more freedom and wealth to most people than true, prosper- than, uh, than true prosperity through socialism and centralization have ever had. Lie. Lie. Capitalism has nothing to do with, uh, with democracy. China is the largest capitalist country in the world. China is the largest capitalist country in the world. Don't ever let somebody lie to you that way. Capitalism and democracy have nothing to do with each other. Nothing to do with each other. Why then, with all the overwhelming evidence around us that I can even see sitting at a coffee shop, do we not view this as prosperity? We have people who are dying to get into our country. People around the world. Okay, let's talk about people dying to get into this country. What Again, the naivete of so many people drives me crazy, but I understand it's because of our lacking in our educational system here. America goes around the world and pilfers the world. They go to Jamaica, they get the bauxite, they go to all the Central American countries and they get all the produce on the cheap. They go to oil exporting countries and they bring, they, they bring the raw material and sell it back with added value. So it's a negative flow. If you have a negative flow into an economy where the people you support are dictators anyway, that means you have a lot of people that are hurting. And when people hurt, they migrate to find somewhere where they can do better. And that is America. Okay? That is America. So please, people, don't just say things off the cuff. You have to look at things a bit deeper. You have to be more introspective, and you have to understand how the world really works. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the rest of the thing because it's all the same uh, kind of crap that the, the young lady talks about. So, you know, with, with us winning... The, the races that we needed to win, I figure why not have a little bit of fun? We are here with can't tell us nothing. You can't yeah, tell yeah. these guys anything. I did it. I, I tried a little bit of grammar here now. We are here with one of the best improv shows in the country. Can't tell us nothing. Welcome aboard, guys. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thanks. Thank well, you. You're doing awesome. Well, yeah. let, let me tell you something now. I am not very apt in dealing with four people at the same time that have the same <laughs> level. So since you guys know each other, I'm going to say, please, please introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about your group. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we are Can't Tell Us Nothing, an, uh, an improv group out of Houston, Texas. We've been together for, what, five years? Five years. Yeah. Forming in Houston and around the country. We've been to Los Angeles. We've been to New York. We've been to uh, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio. Uh, where, 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 where else? Where else? L.A. L.A. Yeah. So my name is Antoine. Um, 
I've been doing improv for five, eight years. Yeah, eight years now. And uh, yeah, these guys are some of the funniest people I've ever met. Um, yeah, my name is Amici. Um, I've been doing improv for uh, is it six years now? Um, around six years. Uh, I know it's too much longer than John, so I was hoping he would go next. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yeah. the exact time. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Loving living in Houston. Everybody well, from England. Before we finish, Amici, your mm-hmm. accent was different from that guy up top named Antoine. Where is that from, man? Uh, I'm originally from England. I grew up in London. Uh, moved out to Texas when I was 16. So you see, folks, we even have an improv guy here in Houston from London. Um, well, I'm John Miles. Um, I'm the wild card of the group. Um, that doesn't mean anything special. It's just, I'm typically the one that makes all the worst choices on stage. <laughs> <laughs> um, nonetheless, um, I, I believe um, it is seven years, Amici. Okay. Um, and it is, uh, he did start two months um, before I did. He was like one of the first people I met. And, you know, we kind of grew up together in improv um, until we met Antoine and Tandy. And they were, they were dope. And I'm pass it on to Tandy to tell her side. That's right. That's right. Bringing up the rear. I am Tandy. Well, my name is Tandaway Kone. I'm a native Houstonian. I have been doing improv for eight years. Antoine and I started out in the same class. So that's good. I don't have to keep up with the years. He does. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, love performing with these guys. Uh, it, it's been a, it's been an amazing ride. It's been an amazing ride with these fellows. They are some funny, funny individuals, creative, hitting all the marks. I'm just glad to be along for the ride. Glad to be along for the ride. Should, should we explain what improv is? Yeah, do that, do. Antoine. Please do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, yeah. You know. Uh, so what we do is we do is a form of improv called long form improv comedy, and essentially it's taking what you've seen on like SNL or Mad TV or whatever sketch show you know of Key and Pill, and we just make it up on the spot on stage or over this thing right here uh, and, and put it online as a podcast. But yeah, we make up scenes, there's characters, there's plot twists, there's surprises. It's a lot of fun. But yeah, that's pretty much it. No, I, you know, let me tell you, folks, that I, I met these these guys at uh, <laughs> a, a, a function we had at KPFT for the presidential elections, and they, uh, you know, I, I told a little story, and they turned that they turned that one story into several stories, and they just had us laughing up the gazoo. And I, I finally begged them and say, hey, would you guys give me the honor of being on politics done right? And I kind of put it on your Facebook page, right? <laughs> And then I said, let's see what they're going to say, because they're going to say, we don't want to deal with no damn politics. And you know what? They said, yes. So when they said, yes, I said, you know what? Let's get busy. So anyhow, hey, Antoine, let me ask you something. Is this just, uh, is this a side gig, a full-time gig? Do you guys have jobs? How do you do all of this stuff? It's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, It is at the moment, like a very side gig hustle, like, but it is growing. Like we have been approached by multiple people to collaborate, to help build, to, to grow our brand and help their theaters or help what they're trying to do. So right now we, I think we all have day jobs, but we are very excited to see where this can go and where it can take us. And what's your expectation, John? Um, my expectation, you know, I'm very ambitious. I want to build, um, there's a, there's a, there's a place called second city 
that's in Chicago. It's like the foundation um, or the capital of where improv and comedy is. And I actually believe we can have that in Texas. And, you know, my, my sites are on building that kind of infrastructure here. And I know it's going to take time and we still got a whole lot of stuff to do, but that that's where I see it going. Is that where your, your group would be sort of the lead group to bring a lot of other uh, acts like that on, or is that what we're talking about? Yes. And uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, play, like Austin is doing a decent job at, you know, stretching and, and finding other ways to kind of spread the art form into other places. I just think, you know, it's kind of how we got together. Well, there, there's a, there's a whole lot of folklore on how we got together, but one of the principles where we all were performing and learning this art form and naturally looking for a way to, you know, uh, uh, someone that you can identify with that can kind of teach you maybe even more connected. Right. And um, we didn't really have that in a group. So we formed a group and one of the things was going around and performing and getting other people that looked like us or identified with us or our culture or, or diversified in culture and, and in comedy. So um, that's kind of a little bit of a mission that we, we do. I, I think it's, it's embedded in just the work we do. Uh, I don't think we like have a, an, an actual goal <laughs> like that we're trying to chip away at, but I think in the DNA, we, we recognize when we go out and perform that there could be someone like us that may say, Hey, I've never seen this. I want to learn it, which will grow the community and, and hopefully inspire other artists. Absolutely. Now, Tandy, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I hate to make the first question that I'm asking you directly having to do with gender, but I, I, I figure since I'm seeing four guys on the screen and one woman, I better do that because some other yeah. people would say, why is Tandy the only woman right there? So <laughs> I'm going to leave that up to you to answer however best to answer. Well, um, I think I'll answer the first part of your question, which is why is Tandy the only woman here with these uh, three guys? And uh, when we formed the group, uh, I think uh, the person, I'm not going to name who formed it, but the person who uh, set out to get us together said, I want to pick some of the, uh, the best improvisers, uh, Black improvisers in our theater, and let's just get together and form a group. Uh, I think at the time I was, um, I think the only woman improviser who had gone through, black woman improviser who had gone through all of the classes. And so um, I happened to be good, pat myself on the back. Uh, Actually, and, you're and, very good. <laughs> and, um, and so they, they, you know, when the idea was introduced to me, I was like, yes, absolutely fantastic. Of course I'll join. Because, um, uh, you know, we, John said it and we don't, you know, we don't necessarily dance around it, or at least I want, I won't. But when you look at improv groups uh, throughout the United States, typically you'll find that they're white male dominated. Mm -hmm. So to see an improv group, first of all black people, and then, you know, to have uh, a black woman in that group is not, is not a usual thing. It's, it's, it's uh, rare. We don't want it to be rare. We want more people to know what improv is, more black people to know what improv is, because all black people know about stand up. But we want them to know uh, improv, that improv has led to a lot of the great comedic actors that you know uh, and that you see on television and in movies. And we just want to expose it there. And just being a woman, it's, you know, again, it's also a very male dominated uh, art form. So it's possible to have a group with four black men, you know, that, that is possible. But 
um, I'm just so you know honored that uh, they extended the the uh, the invitation to me. You know, I I just got schooled because I was about my next question after hearing this mm-hmm. was going to be about uh, look we have a lot of these black comedians from Richard Pryor and all of that not realizing that yeah you have a lot of stand up but mm-hmm. not improv. So I, I didn't quite, even as I'm speaking to you guys, and even I've, I've done this several times, I hadn't made the distinction between the, the, the several acts, the, the, you know, the several type of, would you call it, is it okay to call it a comedic act or, yeah, or, yeah like, like, so. like a comedic act? Now, um, Amici, uh, mm-hmm. coming, you know, uh, there, there are five of us on this thing here. Two of us actually came from somewhere else. <laughs> Okay. Now let me ask you, how was your uh, integration into the group? Uh, I mean, what a lot of people don't realize, right, is being black is one thing, right? But all black ain't the same. (laughs) So there are different experiences that you have that I know you have that is quite different than, let's say, Antoine and John and Tandy. So uh, how did that mix come out? What kind of flavor did you bring to the group? that kind of expanded its role or expanded uh, the, the, the kind of comedy that you guys were able to provide? Hear this, yeah. yeah. Well, um, <laughs> it was very hard at first. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But no, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to no, say. Um, yeah, and uh, I think um, this, is, this, this is one of the things where um, being different helps. Uh-huh. It's good to have, uh, uh, you know, we're four people, but we're from different places we have different experiences um and um I, I think that helps our improv because we have we bring different ideas together um in in fun ways in ways that people wouldn't normally expect um yeah you know because I, I you know I grew up in England I lived for you in Nigeria um you know I lived in Texas I lived in Alabama uh I was an athlete I've, I've had a lot of different things um you know lots of different kind of experiences come together um, John says some of the same things. Anton says some of the same things. Tanya has some of the same things. Um, so there's things that we're, we connect, but then, you know, we also throw in a bunch of different ingredients that, um, you know, we, we don't know about. So we can even educate each other in things and we can uh, discuss things in, in new and fun, different ways. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it was definitely a benefit. I, I think that we're, we're, you know, we're not four siblings who all grew up in the same mm-hmm. house and mm-hmm. um, all went to the same school and all the, all, all the same things. You know, we all and we, we all bring something different to the table, which I think is uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, and I, I can I can attest to that having uh, been it. So let me see if this is something that I am I can actually ask. Uh, Donald Trump has uh, lost his mind, and he thinks <laughs> that he can still win the election. You guys are improv. Does improv work where somebody say, can you do an improv on that? All right, I got an idea. I got an idea. <clears throat> hey, y'all. Yeah, what's up? What's, what's going uh, on? Hey. Normally, I got a bunch of ideas. Yeah. You know, I always have ideas. You oh, yeah. Ideas, right. You know. All the time. All the time, man. Too but, many. Uh, I'm kind of stuck, man. I, 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 I'm feeling like my idea factory is not working right now. The idea factory is, is yeah. clogged. Got the machinery's down. Yeah, man. I mean, it's been like you know, I've been writing jokes in the you know in the room all day, and you know, I just feel like every Donald Trump joke has been done. I think I like, like I think he beats us to the punch, man. I just can't. 
Yo, we're we're about to go on Egberto's show. You, yeah. you, we need you there with the Donald Trump jokes, man. I mean, yeah, I mean get the factory started again, man. Why, why did y'all? Why did y'all promise fifty jokes? Why did y'all say fifty? You'll get fifty Donald Trump jokes. Why did yeah. you promise him that, John? You did seventy-five Biden jokes, and we didn't even ask you to. So, I mean, fifty on Trump—that's that's nothing, man. You can do this. Can I come clean with y'all? Of course. Yeah. Go ahead. Of course. About 63 of those was from Trevor Noah's show. No. You no, John. You missed John. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. You told us not to watch him anymore. Listen, I didn't think anybody still watched him when he was growing his hair out and stuff. I just I just figured it. I mean, no one's they're just wasted jokes. Let me just transform them into this platform. But everybody has a Donald Trump joke. You're saying if we took a joke that came out of the, the John Idea Factory and took the label off, we'd find a Trevor Noah label on it? Is that what you're telling us right now? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Oh, wow. Oh. I know, and, but listen, Egberto loved them, though. He loved them. That's what got us here. I wouldn't have stole those jokes. We wouldn't have been on Egberto's show. John, we gave you an award. Like the funny, funniest, um, funniest Trump joke of the week award, several yeah. times. The the Donald Trump Award. The Donald yeah. Trump Award. We the named Donald it after Trump you. Trump Award. We took up a collection, John. I I I, I took some of the money for my rent to put in that collection. Cause I I thought you deserved it, man. I thought you. Yeah, you I was seeing it as like a like a stimulus package for the Idea Factory. You know. Listen, I, I appreciate all of that. You know, those awards are hanging up in my in my room that I was trying to write jokes from. But um, to be fair, it did take a couple of hours to sit through all of those Trevor Noah jokes. I mean, there's a lot of bad jokes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Wait, wait, hold on. You want credit? You want credit for the time you spent stealing jokes? I mean, there is labor, right? I, I mean, it's part of the jokes. You were watching TV. Labor. That's all labor. That's junk. <laughs> no, it is labor. I had, to, I had to rewrite what I thought he was trying to say in the joke. Listen. I'm, all I'm saying is uh, all the artists steal. There's just nothing I can steal with Donald Trump. Everything has been stolen. There's no more Donald Trump jokes, all right? But I can get a couple more, you know, Joe Bidens out there. I still see that they're doing them. Nobody you know? wants that. Man. John. Hey, Egberto loves Joe Biden. You can't joke about him with Egberto. Listen, I'm a comedian, okay? <laughs> I can joke about whatever I want, all right? Whatever, y'all know it does it first, huh? <laughs> and scene. <laughs> That's a little bit of what we do. And it, it's <laughs> funny because they, they come up with this stuff. You just ask and it happens. And that is not easy. I can tell you that is not. Doing, I can tell you something. Doing politics is a lot easier because you're dealing with stuff that's already there. You know, that, that was great, guy. But, you know, uh, seriously, uh, get, getting on a little serious uh, topic here, you know, uh, before we actually started talking, I was talking to John and, you know, uh, we we're talking about whether how much politics we we're going to talk about. And, and we decided that we weren't going to talk a whole lot of mm. politics. Right. But then uh, Jonathan told me a little bit of his story. And we take this stuff very seriously. Uh, you know, we at Politics and Right are proponents of Medicare for All because People really need it. It is very important, that particular issue of everybody having health insurance. And what we're doing in the United States right now, we call 
pretty much antiseptic murder. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about your story, Jonathan, that uh, we discussed earlier with you and your, your wife and what went, what went on? Absolutely. So um, this year, in the midst of COVID-19, um, in June, my, my wife was diagnosed with stage three inductal uh, carcinoma, invasive inductal carcinoma. She'll kill me for messing that up. I'm sorry, y'all. But nonetheless, uh, she was diagnosed with it. And uh, my wife just turned 30 in January. Uh, we had had a 11th month old baby that she was still breastfeeding um, at the time. And if it wasn't for breastfeeding, we probably wouldn't have found the tumor. So um, <clears throat> of course, like anybody who gets that information and also as young as we are, we were terrified. And um, part of my background was in finance. So not only thinking about the mortality side, I also thought about the financial um, side as well. And that also looked terrifying. Uh, my wife had her care, her care done at MD Anderson. And also um, there was no way that they would let me into the hospital. So the whole time she's done her treatment, her surgeries, anything, she's had to do that by herself. And um, so that was also challenging. Um, one of the ways that we were able to keep up with the financial, uh, bills, uh, since we didn't, we didn't, let's say we didn't qualify for any type of financial assistance, you know, um, none, there was just none available to us. And it wasn't from our caseworker told us it wasn't even worth looking or applying. Um, so we decided to go to GoFundMe. We designed buttons, my wife designed jack hoodies, and she, even in the midst of going through chemo treatment, was out there connecting with people online, sharing her story, and people were donating on, in, in exchange of those items. Um, November 18th, um, my wife had, had her double mastectomy, which was the first time that we knew that the cancer cells weren't in her body. And as of, la as of Monday of this week, she was uh, given a report that she was totally cancer-free. They didn't find one, one microcell in any of her tissue and what they removed. So the gorilla pounds that was on our shoulder just left. And, um, and I'll tell you what, her, pers her perseverance and her, her, her willingness to live and to connect and to to reach out to people potentially helped save a just tremendous like avalanche of other problems that we had. Um, and the, of course, MD Anderson is not cheap. So just seeing the bills roll in, you know, was enough to faint, you know, like there, I think one of our treatment, one of her, there was like a needle that we had, she had to use to inject steroid after a treatment that I believe was um, $18,000. $18,000, man, just to have this patch. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, it was, it, and, it, and when you're, when you're fighting or wanting your family member to fight for their life, your significant other, you know, there's not enough money that you could, somebody could show you that would make you go, man, no, you know, so you got to take what you can get because you got to keep her going. You got to keep her living, you know, but there wasn't one day and some of the worst days, emotional ways I had was thinking about, what are we going to do with this big financial burden that's just growing week after week after week after week? And, you know, 
like I say, shout out to everybody that helped any way. We had people sending us dinners. We had people just chipping in any way. And, and of course, um, we were able to go and hit that out-of-pocket max quickly with the support of our friends and family to protect us because a lot of that money was going to go to our children going to school. So um, that was my journey. Um, my group, shout out to them every week. They let me do this podcast with them every week. And that was sometimes that was only the, the only hour or two that I actually laughed in a day or two, right? Um, because of how much worrying or how much stress that I was under. But um, even the days that I'll suck on the podcast, <laughs> it still gave me a, it gave me something to live for, you know. Um, and um, so I appreciate them for that. But that's that's been my story in a nutshell. Let me tell you, John, uh, I believe stories are some of the best way to communicate and actually effect change. And I think on uh, the, the thing about it is in America, we know how to suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the worst things that's out there. And the, when one shares stories, when people are able to hear each other's stories, they realize, first of all, that they're not alone. But secondly, that your story today can be my story tomorrow. And once we understand that, we can start from a political standpoint, we can start talking about policies that help everybody without somebody think, well, it's only he's going to benefit from that, as opposed to just maybe if I am in your position, I would be able to benefit as a person who has a wife with lupus with that kind of those kinds of expenses. I understand your pain. And it's interesting because earlier on, we also spoke to Amici, who is originally from England and understands that they don't, they don't have that problem that we have at all. Nobody is going to go bankrupt from, uh, or, or lose uh, their, their, their income from that. So uh, thank you for telling the story. And, I, and thanks for having this little interlude where we could get some, a, a, a little bit of our politics in there. Oh, yeah. And I'm so happy that your wife is, uh, is doing, doing much better. So going, going forward and, 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 and kind of cheering it up, a, a little bit more. I, I just want to thank you guys, right, for who you are and for what you do and ask you to tell the audience here, whether here in Houston or elsewhere, how can they really be a part of all that fun that you guys have to offer? Sure, I can, I can mention a few things. Uh, so if you want to find out more about what we do, if you want to see our show, if you want to reach out and connect, have a question, think you'd be a great guest, find us C-Ton Improv is what you want to Google C-T-U-N Improv on Facebook. It's probably your best bet. Uh, but we're also on YouTube. We're also on Instagram. We also have our own website, ctunimprov.com. So check it out on all, on all those platforms. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Reach out, say hi. Please tell me something you wish I had asked you personally. So let's go ahead and start with Tandy. What <laughs> did you wish I would have asked you? I I wish you would have asked me Tandy, what made you get into improv? Why would you? Why did you gravitate to this? So answer it. <laughs> no, you know. Okay. <laughs> hey, look. Um, I needed. I neglected the arts um, in my life after uh, I graduated from high school and went to college. I just stopped doing artistic things, 
and, um, you know, focused on other things. And then when the other things got overwhelming, I realized I needed an outlet. So I, um, uh, I'm a nurse and um, I noticed that humor helped me get through the day, through some of the pressures and the rigors of, of uh, that profession. And I used to say my patients were my, my, uh, my patients' rooms were my stage. I'd open up the door and I'd step on stage. So when I, um, uh, you know, when I realized, yeah, I kind of do need this outlet, I found improv comedy as opposed to stand up because I was, in addition to being a, a nurse, I was a wife. I had a small child and a baby. And, you know, if you do stand up, you out late, you know, two and three in the morning by the time if you're new, by the time you get on a, um, an open mic set. And so um, my ex husband now wasn't having it at the time. So I was like, I got to find something else to do uh, that can uh, let me be funny, but be home by 10. And so I found <laughs> I found or OK, 11, 12 latest. I found improv, found improv comedy. Thank you, Tandy. Uh, Amici. <laughs> what? What I, was what I was so engaged <laughs> in the story. Um, I, I think you're such a great interview. You, you, you know exactly what you're doing. Good cop out, but it's okay. I'm gonna let you slide this time, Vicky. <laughs> John, great. Um, I got a good one. It was, how do you learn improv? Mm. Was a question I would have liked you to ask me. And the reason I ask, I say that is because whenever I get into a deep conversation about what we do, it usually always pops up because what, what it looks like we're doing is just coming up with random thoughts and things, you know? Um, but in essence, there is a framework, which is why improv became an art form, you know, and you learn that framework and you build on those skills, which are being able to listen you know, listen to what somebody is actually saying and inferring in the subtext, um, learning how to accept somebody's idea and, and, and make it um, also your idea and make it better by adding something to it and not taking something from it as another framework that we do. Um, the other thing they learn, that we learned is um, empathizing through that process, because if you have to accept somebody's idea, you learn how to just empathize with where they come from because you have to in order to make this 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 gumbo work. Um, and <clears throat> and the finally, it, it just it just teaches you a, a, a level of just confidence if you know how to listen when people are speaking to you, and you know how to respond by connecting with somebody. It just makes you a to me a wetter a, a more well-rounded person when it comes to having relationships with people. Um, everybody in my group, are, as our improv career has bloomed, our friendships have as well. And it's because of the same things that we just described are all things that we do in our relationships. We listen to each other. We share ideas. We work on each other's ideas to make each other look good. Um, and then the other principle is following the fear. Uh, that's a, something you were hear in improv. Following fear leads you to dismiss your own you know, insecurities about something you don't want to do. Um, and part of what we do is letting go of what we can't control to create something better. Beautiful. Antoine, bring us home. 
Sure, I'll keep mine short and sweet. I wish you would have asked me if I'm really from Houston because, yes, I am born and raised. For some reason, people hear how I speak. They don't think that I'm from Houston. They think I'm from somewhere else, but I am. I was raised in A-Leaf, Houston, Texas. The SWAT, as some people might know, Southwest or Southwest, as some other people might say. But that's uh, <laughs> just so people know Houston, Texas here. H-Town. <laughs> can't tell us nothing look guys it was my honor to have all four of you on politics done right uh first of all i want to thank you for the fun that i had with you guys at the presidential show that we had at kpft and i want to thank you for giving me the opportunity and giving my audience the opportunity to learn a little bit about you guys all the information about you, we are going to put in a blog post, a standalone blog post as well, because, again, I think uh, you guys, you guys are just great. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, please remember to go to kpft.org. Again, that, now, that is kpft.org and provide us with whatever contribution you can to ensure that KPFT stays on air. This is an important station, especially in these times. We need to have a station where your words matter, where the information that you're getting matter. And that is KPFT. So please, folks, uh, thank you so kindly for being here. Uh, thank you for kindly. I know you can be anywhere else. And the fact that you are here, we honor you. But again, please go to kpft.org and help a helping hand to KPFT via Politics and Right. My name is Egberto Willis, and you know how I end this, baby. I am what? I am out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. <laughs>